As Bob alluded to, uh, our family has had an addition to it uh, since the last time I was here. And I think maybe her picture might be up there. And uh, I, I was talking to Alice on the phone. She's still down there helping them in Orlando. This is uh, uh, Dulaney Jordan, spelled Jordan, but it's, they pronounce it since it's, uh, it's more of an Auburn University pronunciation, Jordan, you know. And, uh, but uh, uh, they're doing very well. And this was just a few hours after she was born. Alice is holding her. And uh, she's, uh, Alice uh, said, and I know you uh, who are grandparents or even parents can relate to this. Uh, uh, Alice said, you know, I think she's the most beautiful baby I've ever seen, except for Becky, our daughter. So, so there, uh, I've done my grandfather bragging thing, which you expected me to do. Let's pray together. Good and gracious God, thank you for the privilege and the joy of coming here and worshiping you together. Thank you for the joy of seeing this baptism as Bo was baptized. Thank you for the wonder of hearing what you're doing in different parts of our world and for the privilege which we had of, uh, of sending people to Haiti. Thank you for the sounds of the future. And God, we're so grateful for your word which speaks to us in all times and seasons in a way that's far beyond my doing. We pray even in these moments that are before us, through the power of your Spirit, that you would speak to each one of us, speak to the people and the preacher alike. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Try to remember the first church of your memory. Try to hearken back to that. Maybe for some of you it was, uh, it was here. How many of you, this is the first church that you've ever been a part of? A few of you. As I think about that, and I've shared this before, but the first church that I was ever a part of was in southwestern Michigan. It was a little church that was on the corner of three gravel roads and one paved road. And uh, if it was full, it would have uh, maybe somewhere between 75 and 100 people, including the balcony. And uh, there wasn't much educational space there. In fact, uh, there were just clusters of people, students, and different classes in the sanctuary itself. And as I think of that place, it was a place that uh, I didn't live very close to, but I was uh, picked up on a bus, and I, and I rode the bus to that church. And, and as that bus driver opened the door, he had a smiling, welcoming face. And that was my first encounter with who God is and what the church is all about. And it was a very, very winsome, tantalizing positive thing. Now that little church is about as different from this one as could be. It's almost like the comparative difference between, uh, let's say, the gym and uh, the movie Hoosiers. Remember that? And Hickory? And, uh, and maybe uh, Banker's Life Fieldhouse. Kind of uh, that kind of difference. While it was different in that setting, to be sure, and some of you grew up in churches like that, the phenomena that is exactly the same, exactly the same, is this. When people encounter the risen Christ, their lives are wonderfully, joyfully changed. One of the great joys of living with you over these past eight months has been to hear some of your stories and to hear how God has worked in your lives and changed you for the better. I recall in those earlier years when I was uh, learning about the faith 
hearing a particular gospel song. And the first phrase of that song in each of the stanzas was, when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes. And it went on to cite all kinds of things that happen when Jesus comes. And it cited situations where people were blind and when Jesus comes, they're healed. And people who are distraught and when Jesus comes, they find new hope and help. When Jesus comes, life changes for the better. It takes on new meaning and significance as people encounter the now risen Lord. As we continue this series entitled Basking in the Light of the Resurrection, in these weeks between Easter and Pentecost, once again we're going to be looking in John's Gospel. Last Sunday, Scott shared about Mary Magdalene, how she encountered the risen Lord there in the Garden Cemetery. This morning, we're going to be looking together at the scene where Jesus first encountered those men in whom he had poured himself for three long years. These are men who were shattered. These are men who were scattered at his betrayal, his trial, and his crucifixion, all of them except the author, John. So buckle your seatbelts and hold on tightly, my friends. This is an amazing, life-altering encounter. If you would, follow along with me as I read from John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19 and reading through verse 23. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Listen now for the word of the Lord. On the evening of that first day of the week, and this happens to be Easter evening, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. In verses 19 through 21, we find that Jesus came and stood among the disciples. Now, John begins by telling us that this is Easter evening. This is resurrection day. All the disciples except Thomas are gathered behind locked doors, locked doors because of the fear that the religious leaders will blame Jesus' missing body on them and say that they stole it. This is probably the same upper room where they'd celebrated the Passover and what we've come to know as the Last Supper. They were very much gripped by fear. They perceived that their lives were in grave danger. They had gone through extreme emotional upheaval with probably very little sleep since that last Thursday when they had met there together with Jesus. Then Jesus came. The risen Lord came and stood among them. Now, he didn't knock at the door and ask entrance. He didn't somehow sneak in when they were distracted in another area of the room. It was like, poof, he was there. Instantly, suddenly. 
It's like the many accounts in the Bible when angels appear to those who are there to hear their message. As Jesus always does, he meets these disciples where they are. And he says to them, peace be with you. He's using the common greeting, shalom, which is still used today if you're in Israel or if you spend time with our our Jewish friends. It was anything but common or routine for them in their situation. In the midst of their fear and extreme emotional upheaval, they needed the kind of peace that Jesus was talking about. Now, the Hebrew word shalom means not only the cessation or the absence of fear and the absence of conflict and stress and strife, but it also has the added idea of all that is good, of the greatest sense of well-being. Oh, how they needed shalom. Then John tells us that Jesus showed them the nail prints in his hands and the scar where the spear had pierced his side. There would be no question later when Jesus was gone that they had encountered the actual risen Lord. They had knew exactly who he was. He was not an angel. He was not some kind of ghost. This was their master, Jesus, with whom they had spent three long years of ministry. Yes, a thousand times yes. He was Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means God with us. And he was with them in resurrected form. Notice the change that happens when Jesus comes. From being frozen in fear, we are told that they were overjoyed. When Jesus comes, he brings joy. Please note the joy that he brought them did not mean that their lives would always be euphoric, that there would be no pain, no more pain or grief or stress. No joy is much different than that. That may be happiness, and happiness comes from the outward happenings of our lives. Joy comes from deep down inside of us. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, which the Spirit produces. Make no mistake about it. Happiness is something to be embraced, and it's wonderful. But it's transient. It's fleeting. It depends upon those outward circumstances of our lives. There would be many times in the future when these men were anything but happy. But they would be filled with joy. Their joy would always be rooted in their deep relationship with the risen Lord. This morning, do you see yourself in that group of disciples? Listen to these pensive words of Roger Fredrickson, a pastor and a biblical commentator. How often the contemporary church finds itself behind closed doors, fearful and ineffectual, living on the wrong side of the resurrection. The problems are so vast and the enemy so overwhelming, and all that talk about Jesus seems so futile. What can be done but hide in the sanctuary, discussing how desperate the situation is? Does that sound like you? Does that sound like us? Are we huddling in fear today? If so, what's your greatest fear? 
Name it. What's your greatest fear? Maybe we're afraid of financial failure. Maybe we're afraid as a congregation of votes or decisions coming from our denomination. Maybe we're afraid of what might happen when someday we call a new senior pastor. Maybe he'll make changes that we won't like. Maybe it's the fear of the future for those we love in the midst of a world where there's all kinds of problems and there are terrorists. As I held my newborn granddaughter a little over a week ago now, and I looked at her in a pensive moment, and I held her for about four hours that day, as I looked at her, I thought, what is life going to be like for her when she grows up and when she's my age someday? What will our world be like? And so there's fear. Maybe it's the fear of the unknown, and the greatest of the unknowns is death. Or even worse, we fear what's going to happen to us before we die. As was true for the disciples, fear can paralyze us. It can immobilize us causing us to huddle behind closed doors as if we're on the wrong side of the resurrection. Oh, dear friends, I proclaim to you with everything that is within me that Jesus, the risen Lord, has come, and he is among us today, right here. And he says to us as individuals and to, as a church, peace, be still. Shalom. He knows you. He knows your fears. He knows your apprehensions. This is his church. He's the one who founded this church back in 1983. Just as he has in the past, he understands our fears and our sources of worry and anxiety. Yes, like those early disciples, when Jesus comes, he meets us where we are, and he brings us peace and joy. We find next in verse 21 that Jesus commissions his disciples. Having established his presence and his identity, Jesus lets the disciples know that they can't stay there in that hallowed place. They can't stay there looking at how bad things are. Once again, for the second time, Jesus says to them, Shalom, peace be with you. I believe his repetition of this common greeting must have been for emphasis as he relates to them where they are. Then come his simple, yet unbelievably profound words of commissioning. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. They are to be God's presence in their world as they share and, and, and as they enact the good news of God's love and grace in the world in which they live. There's a sense in which they are to carry on the ministry and the mission of Jesus. They are to preach the good news of forgiveness and new beginnings, of peace and joy when people experience a personal relationship with God. They are to teach their contemporaries all that Jesus has shared with them and taught them so that they might grow deep in their faith they are to pour themselves into others. They are to make disciples and release disciples out into the world. They are to be healing, caring for the physical, emotional, spiritual needs of hurting, sometimes traumatized, beleaguered people, regardless of their life situation. 
much like our people who went to Haiti were, and much like you're doing on a week-by-week basis as you live life here in this city. As Jesus commissioned his beloved protégés, he was sending them forth knowing that they would experience the same joys and sorrows, the same opportunities and challenges that he faced. And by the way, as you may know, all of them, except for John, and he became an exile, were martyred for the cause of Christ. Oh, my dear friends, as the same risen Lord comes and stands among us in our fear and our apprehension, he also commissions us. He wants us to make sure that we realize that we were never meant to be a holy huddle whose sole purpose is to preserve our funds, to preserve our programs, to preserve our buildings, to preserve our way of life, to preserve our past. We are called to be sent ones. We are called to be spent ones who give of ourselves to the world like Jesus did. I like what our book of order from our denomination has to say about talking about our mission to share the good news and care for people like Jesus did. It says this, the church is called to undertake this mission even at the risk of losing its life, trusting in God alone as the author and giver of life, sharing the gospel, and doing those deeds in the world that point beyond themselves and the new reality in Christ. As Jesus commissions us anew, I pray that we will be willing to risk and trust like Jesus' disciples did as they responded to him. Finally, in verses 22 and 23, knowing that the disciples could not carry on this commission by themselves, Jesus breathed on them the Holy Spirit. You know, it would have been natural for us had we been there, or certainly for his disciples to say, Lord, uh, we have a problem here. You're sending us forth to do what we saw you do, but guess what? We're not you. After having been with Jesus for those three long years and seeing firsthand all that he had done, they were keenly aware of their limitations, and they were keenly aware that they weren't Jesus. How could they ever be capable of doing the kinds of things he did? They were in awe of him, and now he's the risen Lord standing in their midst. They were not God like he was. Jesus always knew what they were thinking somehow. He was going to give them the ability to do what he did and even more. In verse 22, John writes that Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Remember in the Genesis account when God creates man, he forms him out of the dust of the earth, and then he breathes life into him. He breathes him into being. The Hebrew word for breath is the word ruach, and is the same word for wind and spirit. It's the same idea that Jesus was talking about in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus is wondering about what Jesus is talking about about being born of the Spirit. And Jesus talks about the wind and how it's like the Spirit. You can't see it, but you can see that it's moving the trees and you can see where it has been and what it has done. In essence, Jesus is recreating them. 
He's giving them a second wind, unlike any wind they've ever known before. He's giving them a new spirit. Earlier in the year when we talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we talked about the fact that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on special people for special occasions, and he came sporadically. The disciples are special people. This is a special occasion to be sure, but they are still pre-Pentecost. In five short weeks, as Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit comes on all who believe for all the situations of their lives to be with them continually. The Holy Spirit was Christ living in them so that they could be and do what would otherwise have been impossible. They would be empowered. They would be guided. They would be energized. They would be encouraged. They would be gifted to do things that Jesus did and even more. For example, by God's grace, as they proclaimed the good news of Christ's salvation, people would be forgiven of their sins when they confessed them and when they confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord. And as was true for Jesus, if those who listened to them chose not to believe and receive the good news, then their sins would not be forgiven. When Jesus comes and appears among us, as was true for those first disciples who encountered him that first Easter evening, he empowers us to continue or replicate his ministry in the world today. This is made abundantly possible by the Holy Spirit whose presence and power dwells within us. I like the way Tim Keller, Presbyterian pastor in New York City, puts it when he says, properly understood, Christianity is by no means the opiate of the people. Remember, that's what the communists said. Christianity is the opiate of the people. It puts them to sleep, as it were. It's more like the smelling salts. I like that. We are called to be positive agents of change and transformation, waking up people and helping them experience life as God always meant it to be. You know, there was an early church document known as the Epistle to Diognetus. It was written somewhere between 120 to 200 AD. And it was written by a man named Athanagoras. Listen to these words in one important section describing how Christianity, Christians are alike and also different from others. See what you think. He says, the difference between Christians and the rest of mankind is not a matter of nationality or language or customs. Christians do not live in separate cities of their own, speak any special dialect, nor practice any eccentric ways. They pass their lives in whatever township, Greek or foreign, each man's lot has determined, and conform to ordinary local usage in their clothing diet, and other habits. Nevertheless, the organization of their community does exhibit some features that are remarkable and even surprising. For instance, though they are residents at home in their own countries, their behavior is more like transients. Though destiny has placed them here in the flesh, they do not live after the flesh. Their days are past on earth, but their citizenship is in the heavens. 
They obey the prescribed laws, but their private lives, in their private lives, they transcend those laws. They show love to all men, and all men persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned, yet by suffering they are quickened into life. They are poor, yet making many rich, lacking all things, but having all things in abundance. They repay curses with blessings and abuse with courtesy. For the good they do, they suffer strife as evildoers. When Jesus comes, not only does he meet our deepest needs, but he challenges us to be more than we could have dreamed that we could be on our own. Listen to this story from Dan Kimball, a large church pastor from Seattle. He says, a few Sundays ago, I was heading home after preaching three times. I was tired and looking forward to opening my laptop, reading my favorite blogs, particularly ones focused on missional theology, missional theology and leadership. And missional theology and leadership says that we're outside of ourselves. We're reaching out to the world around us. Just then, I received a text from a friend. He was inviting me to a club to see a band with a number of non-Christians, including one I was trying to build a relationship with. I suddenly faced a decision. Do I go home and read blogs about being missional, or do I go to the club and actually be missional? Sounds like an easy decision, but it wasn't. In all honesty, part of, the, what part of me truly wanted to go to the comfort of home and just sit in front of my laptop. That, more, that moment faced, forced me to begin reflecting on how much time I spend on blogs, Twitter, Facebook, other online social networking sites. I wondered, if I spent less time online, could I be spending more time building friendships? As was true of those disciples, when they were encountered by the risen Lord on that first Easter evening, you and I are confronted with choices, much like Dan was. Oh, dear friends, what is the risen Lord calling you to be and do in the world where you live? each day. Let us pray. God, thanks for these moments in which we've looked at your word together. Those simple verses are very profound. They speak to us about living on this side of the resurrection, believing that you are among us, and through the power of your Spirit, you are sustaining us, but more than that, sending us forth to be your ambassadors in the world where we live each day. God, help us to not just talk about being there for others in the world in which we live, but help us to actually do it. I pray that each of my sisters and brothers this week might go and make a difference where they live, in their families, where they work, with their friends, at school, wherever they go. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.